listen, this morning, uh, what I want to do today is really just share some things from my heart about the journey that we have been on uh, really over the past 20 months in our pursuit of the Lord in prayer. We have been a church, and here's our desire. You've heard me talk about this. If you're new, this will be kind of catch you up on where God has, uh, what God's been doing and where he's taking us is that um, for about 20 months now, God has just really been working in our church and in my life as your pastor in the area of seeking the Lord and, and, and pursuing him in prayer. And uh, I really want us to become a church that's built upon prayer. A church that's not built upon people or programs or pastors or preaching, really a church that is built upon prayer where we would become a church that has a passion for the presence of God and that we would be in this consistent pursuit of more and more and more of him. And, and I've said this and I'll say this again, that I really believe that the future of New Beginnings Baptist Church will be defined by our pursuit for the Lord together as a faith family in corporate prayer. Truly believe that. And really this journey, uh, let me just kind of tell you the backdrop of this, this journey that, that started about 20 months ago, really in my heart started a few months earlier. And uh, in, in that season of, of life for me, I was in a very dark place. It was in a very unsettled place. Spiritually, I was spiritually dry. I was discouraged. I was kind of frustrated at myself because I thought in, in my own life I would see more spiritual fruit. I was frustrated with our church and uh, some of the things that I was seeing going through that season of COVID and, and, and the social unrest, things that we were seeing as a nation kind of affecting our church. Um, and I really began to sense that something was broken in me and then also broken in us. I began to, to, to recognize that, that the Lord had gone silent in my life, that while he was gracious to give me messages that I believe encouraged, we were seeing uh, some, some life change, we were not seeing uh, salvations like we once did, people come into faith in Christ, we were not seeing the power of the Holy Spirit manifested in our church like we once did, and I just knew something was off, didn't know exactly what it was, and I was very frustrated, even frustrated at God, I was questioning my call to ministry, I was questioning whether or not I wanted to be uh, here at this church, I was maybe looking for other types of, of career pathways, and never really acting on that, just in the, in, the, in the late parts of the night, just my mind wouldn't turn off. I'm like, this is not a good season and not a good place to be, and I really didn't know what to do. And um, through that season, as God was kind of silent, there was one moment in November where I was at a conference, and a buddy of mine shared a testimony where he kind of went through something very similar, and and through his testimony, the Lord just kind of for the first time gave me a little bit of hope. He just said, you're going to lead our people to pray. And I didn't know what that looked like. It wasn't like all of a sudden I was on fire and, and my prayer life changes changed. It was just like the Lord said, you're going to lead the people to pray. And, but God was still silent. And so while I kind of had some direction and we began to say you know, to the church, hey, we're going to start prayer meetings in January. And, and we sensed God leading us to do that. And we began to rearrange things as a staff because I really sensed that I was spiritually dead, our church was spiritually dead, and that we needed the Lord to move. But even in that, there was silence, and there was loneliness, and there was this sense of almost a spiritual depression on my life. And, and to be honest with you, spiritually, I don't know if this is physically, but, but it was almost as if I was, I was walking in a fog, and I couldn't see where the Lord was taking. I didn't know what was going on in my own heart. I, I didn't realize how, you know, how, how I could help the church get to the place that I sensed God wanting it to be because I was just, I was dry and I was empty and I didn't know what to do, what to do. So between that moment in November of God saying, you're going to lead the people to pray, it was very quiet. But then when we got to the end of the year, first weekend in January, I was not scheduled to preach, but I was going to be at church. And Pastor Daniel asked me, he said, what do you want me to preach on? Because he was scheduled to preach that day. I said, man, just preach on prayer uh, because we're supposed to be having these prayer meetings. And honestly, I was still frustrated because I'm like, Lord, Lord, you haven't even told me how to do this or where we're going, and yet we're gonna have these meetings. So it was kind of a step of faith. So I just told Daniel, preach on prayer. And, and to be honest with you, I was, I was kind of at the apex of my uh, spiritual exhaustion and frustration. In fact, that whole weekend, I was trying to find a reason not to be at church. I don't know if y'all have ever done that. You're giggling because you have. But then my wife reminded me, you're the pastor, you have to be there. So I, I, I go to church and I sit right there. Pastor Daniel opened up God's word. He began to preach uh, from Genesis and tell the story of Jacob wrestling with the Lord and how he fought with the Lord all night long because he 
wanted a blessing from the Lord, and he wanted to see God's hand on his life. And after a long battle of, of, of wrestling and literally physically fighting with the Lord, the Lord blessed him. But he, to, to get him to that point, he touched his hip. And it says that it dislocated Jacob's hip, maybe even broke his hip to the point of which he walked with the limp the rest of his life. And, and very clearly, as, as, as clear as anything else, I'm sitting there in this spiritual fog, almost a physical fog. And I'm sitting there, and, and, I, and I hear the Lord say to me, it was almost like the fog lifted in the Lord's voice. For the first time, very clearly, he said to me, I have left you in this season because I want you to fight for me. I want you to wrestle with me. I've left you here because I want you to realize that I'm what you need, and I, want you to stay, I wanted you to stay in this place so I can break your hip. And the Holy Spirit impressed a phrase in my heart that's really down defining, at least to a degree, my life. I sense the Holy Spirit say to me very clearly, I've left you in here in this season so you would fight for me, and I've been trying to break your hip because I would rather you limp with me than run without me. And it was almost as if I'm sitting there and, and like this fog that had been going on in my life for about five months, it immediately lifted. I sensed this burden roll off of me and I saw with clarity where the Lord wanted me to take the church. I didn't know what the destination was, but I didn't know the path. And that began a journey in my life where God began to release me from sin that I had struggled with, from bitterness that I'd harbored, a need for asking for forgiveness from people that I've hurt, and a journey of God transforming and what has transformed me and what has transformed our church. That journey is that we got on our face before the Lord and we started on Wednesday nights gathering at 6.30 and we, we just pray for an hour and a half. We call on the name of the Lord and we plead. And that journey that we've been on this last 20 months, I'm telling you, I'm a different person than I was before. We're a different church than we were before. We have seen since this time almost 1,000 people come to faith in Christ. We have seen literally medically verified miracles happen in this room. We have witnessed addiction being broken, marriages being restored. The heartbeat of our church began to be transformed. We're not the same church because the presence of God has visited us. And we, I believe he's stirring again. But, but here's what I want to do today. I, I want us to be reminded from the scripture of, of, of what got us here and why we have to stay there. And really this question is if we can see the spiritual condition of the church of Jesus as a whole in our nation and recognize that if God, if, if what, what we've seen the last 20 months, if what God has done the last 20 months is what he does when his people pray, then what would it look like for us to do this the next 20 years? Because there's more of him to know, there's more of him to taste, there's more of him to experience. So if this is what he can do in a short window, as we're just now learning what this looks like, imagine what God would do in our hearts, not just here in this community, but in our nation, if, if he found us in this posture of prayer and seeking his face on behalf of not just our church, but all the churches in America, it just might be that God would visit us with a revival. And that's my heartbeat. I do not ever want to go back to the place. We just go through the motions and play the game. I want to see God move in power in my life and in our church. And I know that's what you desire. What I want to do today is just tell you why this is so important. So I'm going to get you to grab your Bibles. And I want you to go to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. And uh, the sermon today, as you're turning there, I want you to know it's going to be different than most sermons that I preach. I'm I'm gonna be preaching more uh, of a prophetic message today than a teaching message. So most of the time, I'm very structured and systematic and there's points that you can write down. So if you're a note taker, my apologies today. Uh, but what God's burdened me with today is, is more or less just to unload my heart from the text and show you why we are so desperate for prayer and why we all, this, as the church family as a whole, need to engage like never before in praying together and pursuing the Lord in even greater ways than we've done the last 20 months. So Jeremiah 29 is where we're gonna be. We're gonna start reading in verse 10. If you're there, say, the Bible is true. Thus says the Lord, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back 
to this place. Now, verse 11, very popular verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, Jeremiah 29, 11 is probably, by my estimation, the most misinterpreted and abused verse in all of the Bible. Like, we love this passage of Scripture because in, 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 in American Christianity, we, are, we, we love us some me, right? And so when we hear a verse that says that God's saying, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm me. We're like, yes, Lord, give me some of that. And so here's what we do with Jeremiah 29, 11. We ignore the context and we just take it out and we embrace the promise in it in a way that it was never meant. And so here's how we do that because this verse is so popular. We got t-shirts with Jeremiah 29, 11 all over it. We've got um, pictures on our wall and plaques in our office. Jeremiah 29, 11, because we're claiming this promise. We got coffee mugs. We're drinking some coffee in the morning for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And if we could make money off of it, we would have ashtrays with Jeremiah 29, 11. I promise you, in life, we would sell them. But in the, in the words of the great theologian, Indigo Mantoyas from Princess Bride, <laughs> I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> and we miss the point of the passage. Uh, so let me give you a couple of things, and then we're going to, I'm going to, Go back in Jeremiah and show you the hard context. It's very heavy, very difficult, but it's much needed if we want to kind of understand maybe what's happening in our culture, specifically in the church today. So let me give you a couple, two things to remember when you look at Jeremiah 29, 11. Number one, this is not a promise given to individual Christians. This is not a promise given to individual Christians. We love that. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. And so many pastors pull that passage and they preach this like it's an individual promise. The problem is the context. This is not a promise given to individual Christians. This is a promise given to the covenant community of faith. This is not a, 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 a passage given to individuals but to the faith family. How do we know this? Because it's plural, and then God is speaking to his nation. So it, to interpret it, for I know the plans I have for you all in Texas, y'all. Those of you from the north, use guys, right? For I know the plans I have for you guys, declares the Lord. So that, that's, the, that's the picture. So it's not a promise for individuals. It's a promise for the covenant community of faith. Here's number two. It's not a promise given for people who are going through general suffering to see that God has a bigger picture and plan for your life. This verse oftentimes is used like that. And by the way, is it true that in our suffering, God has a plan for our life? Everybody say amen to that. And there are verses for that. This is just not one of them. Jeremiah is not speaking to a group of people just generally going through a hard time, and he's not just trying to say to them, hey, hang in there, God has good plans for you, and I know it's hard, but just don't quit. No, no, no. This is a passage, this is a promise given to a nation who has lived in rebellion, and because of their sin and rebellion, God is bringing spiritual discipline into their life. His judgment is upon them. They have been exiled from the promised land and now they have become prisoners to the Babylonian empire and it is directly resulted, it's a direct result rather, from their sin and their rebellion. So this is not a promise for those who are just going through a general suffering. This is a promise for those who have lived in rebellion and because of the rebellion, God is crushing them. So what's the promise? I'm crushing you right now because I want to restore you. I'm bringing judgment upon you and discipline upon your life because I have better plans for you than you're living, and so I'm going to break you in order to restore you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, is a promise that in the midst of his judgment on our life, he's not done with us. Anybody thankful for that? So what's the condition? What got him to this place? So if you go back to chapter five, so take a left in your Bible and go to Jeremiah five. I'm gonna hit a couple of verses in five, then go to a seven and see how this fleshes itself out to show you the context of verse, uh, or chapter 29, rather. So Jeremiah chapter five, verse 20, here's where you begin to see the, the condition. They're sinful, rebellious, idolatrous people, and, and God is gonna address this. Jeremiah five, verse 20, 
Here's what the scripture says. Declare this to the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Jeremiah is saying to them is that you're so caught up in your sin that you are, you've lost your spiritual discernment. You have eyes, but you can't see what's in front of you. You've got ears, but you can't hear the voice of the Lord. Like that you are spiritually blind, you are spiritually deaf. This is the point, because of their sin. Look what he goes on to say. He says, do, do you not fear me? And the answer is no. Do you not tremble before me? Of course they don't. Now listen to the analogy here. He says, I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart and they have turned aside and gone away. Now here's the analogy, don't, don't miss this. He's saying, you, like, you, you don't fear me anymore. You don't tremble in my presence. You don't have spiritual discernment. And then he uses this analogy. He says, as massive as the ocean is and as strong as the ocean is, the waves toss and the sea roars and as powerful as it is, he says, I have drawn a barrier of sand and the ocean, as powerful as it is, submits to that barrier. The waves can crash, the sea can roar, but it knows its boundaries. But then he says, but not my people. Like the ocean, as vast as it is and as large as it is, as powerful as it is, it understands the sovereignty that I have and I restrain it, but my people are so rebellious, they are out of control, they are stubborn, they have defied my boundaries, they don't care about the barriers, they've disregarded the sovereign hand that I have on their life. This is a spiritual problem. He says, they, specifically, they have turned aside and gone away. They've abandoned the Lord and his ways. So th this is the spiritual condition, spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, in a season of rebellion where they disregard the hand of the Lord on their life. It's a scary place to be. Now look how it fleshes itself out. Flip over now to the right to Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7, you're gonna see a uh, very strong word, and, and this is where it's going to start making application to us as we journey through it. Jeremiah 7, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house at the temple and proclaim this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who entered these gates to worship. Now that's key here. So he's saying, I want you to stand at the temple, stand at the church house, and as people are coming in, you're gonna be preaching a message. So imagine showing up on a Sunday, and you're coming in trying to get your seat, but I'm out in the foyer, or one of our other pastors, and they're just preaching heaven down as you're walking in. That's weird, right? This is what Jeremiah is being instructed to do. He says in verse three, thus says the Lord of hosts, here's the message, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So here's the message. He says, listen, you gotta repent. You gotta turn from your sin and you've lived in rebellion and it's time to turn back to me. And he's telling them, if you do this, I will let you dwell in this place. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the temple and the land. That in the temple, God's presence would dwell among his people. And he's saying, if you will turn from your sin, my presence will dwell among you. You will be able to live and experience my presence. And then he gives this warning, and I'll unpack it because it's a little confusing. He says, and do not be deceived by this message, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You say, what in the world is that about? So let me, let me explain the covenant community. So this is the people of God. Say, so what is the people of God? It's the people that God has entered into a relationship with through, through a covenant. That God has, has ratified a relationship that is permanent with the nation of Israel. God's desire for humanity has always to gather humanity to become a people unto himself. So in the redemptive work of, of calling people unto himself, God established the covenant community, Israel, the chosen nation that would come, and they would have this, this relationship with God, and here is the covenant. I'm gonna be your God. You're gonna be my people. 
You're gonna walk in my ways, and as you walk in my ways, my presence, the very presence of the creator God is gonna dwell among you, and because my presence is with you, my blessings will be bestowed upon you, and as you, you walk in these blessings and experience my presence, the other nations around you are gonna know that the true and living God is the God of Israel. So that's the relationship. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And as you walk in submission to me, my spirit and my presence and my power will dwell among you and you will walk in my blessings. That's the promise. And here is what really derailed Israel, derailed Judah in this season. Somewhere along the way, they began to think that because they were the covenant community, because they were the chosen ones, that the rules didn't apply to them. They begin to believe somehow that as long as they went to the temple and they worshiped and they offered their sacrifices and they go through the ritual of religion, that all is well. So here was the deceptive message, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So imagine this, they're living in rebellion, they're living in disobedience, and all the prophets are coming to them and saying, if you don't turn away from your sin, God's going to remove his presence. God's going to bring destruction. And here's what they were saying, God would never do that. The temple of the Lord is here. They could not imagine for the life of them how God would ever, why God would ever destroy the temple. Why would he ever remove his spirit from them? Why in the world would God let Jerusalem, this city that he has established for his covenant people? And so here's what they, they did is they just lived like they wanted to live and they, they, they excused their sin under this banner. We're the people of God. The temple is here. We can do what we want, live like we want, act like we want, and God is obligated to bless us with his presence and his power because we're his people. They lived like they were entitled to the grace of God on their life because of the covenant. We'll do what we want to do and we'll get away with it because we're the people of God for crying out loud. And these crazy prophets are telling us that the enemies are gonna come and destroy the temple and God's gonna remove his presence and remove us from the land. God would never do that. And so with this, this mindset of entitlement, they lived like they wanted to live and they disregarded the word of the Lord. And this is a dangerous place. And listen to what he goes on to say. He gets worse before he gets better. He says this in verse number two. He says, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who entered, this phrase is huge, who entered these gates to worship. Now, eyes right here for a second. They were living like they want to live, but they didn't stop going to church. They were doing what they want to do, but they didn't stop going to the house of the Lord. They entered into worship. What's interesting is the word worship here, it's a word that literally means to bow low for the purpose of exaltation. It's a word that, that is used oftentimes like if a, in ancient days, if a, um, if, if a king or a powerful person was to walk into the room, all those who were subject to that king, they would bow down before him, and this would have been a physical expression of the authority of that particular person over their life. It was a way of elevating them and not just acknowledging you're elevated, but we are submitted to you and you rule over us. That's the picture. And so when he says you're gathering into worship, he's using this word. You're coming in and you're going through the motions as if, if, if I'm exalted in your life. But the truth is worship has never been about this ritual practice where we just lip service to God's exalted position. The idea of worship is a posture of life that submits to the sovereignty and the rule and reign of God over every area of our life. You see, they were coming in and they were going through the motions of God, you're great, and singing their songs and making their sacrifices, but their lives were not submitted as lives of worship. Does that sound familiar? The American church is full this morning with men and women who have no regard to the things of the Lord, no hunger for holiness, no desire for obedience. No pursuit of Jesus in their life. But we come into the house of the Lord and we come in and we sing our songs and we go through the lip service and we go through the ritual without there being a, a part of us or even majority of our life is not even submitted to him. We just live like we want. And he's saying, listen, that's not worship. You see, worship, listen to me, what we do in this room 
was never meant to be camouflaged for our sin. What we do in here was supposed to be an echo of what we live like outside of here. This is where the people of God are. The same values, the same morals, the same idolatry, the same pursuits as the rest of the nations, and yet they're coming to the house of the Lord going, but we're the people of God. And he's going, if you're going to live like the rest of the world, then I'm going to let you go and experience life like the rest of the world. I'm going to remove my hand. How do we know that? Look what he goes on to say. Verse number five. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not uh, go after the other gods to your harms, listen to this, then I will let you dwell in this place. So again, I'm not dwelling with a people who are living in sin. I'm not, living, I'm not gonna dwell in the presence in the midst of men and women who don't regard who I am in my character or my word. He says, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Again, the temple of the Lord, this idea that God owes them because they're his people. He says, now verse nine, don't miss this. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and make offerings to Baal and go after the other gods that you have not known? Now listen to this, verse 10. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered? Lord, saying, are you, are you kidding me? Like, are you really gonna go and live like the rest of the world and, and, and practice all the pagan practices, all the, 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 the pursuits of the world, and then you're gonna come into my house and act like it's all okay and just say, well, we're delivered because we're the people of God. It doesn't matter how we live. Are you, are you kidding me, the Lord is saying to them? You think it works like that? And you come and stand before me, verse 10, in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. So eyes right here, this is the idea of a person coming in to worship, week in and week out. And we sing our little song, we raise our hand, we have our Bible open, and there's no desire to realign our life with what we're hearing and what we're declaring. We're just playing the game we're just going through the motion. No heart for the Lord, just religious practice, and we're going, hey, we're cool, it's great. Listen to the next phrase. Has this house, verse 11, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. That last phrase should make us tremble. Again, the Lord is saying, are you kidding me? Like, you're going to live like you live with no regard to pursuing me. And, and though you're my people, you don't live like my people, but then you expect the blessing that comes with being my people with no holiness and no righteousness. And he says, look, I want you to know I myself have seen it. I, I see what you're doing. You think you're getting away with it. He doesn't just say, I have seen it. It's emphatic. I Myself, I, even I, have seen it. The Lord is saying to them, you're not getting away with it. Like, like it doesn't matter how, long, how, how, how loud you sing or how high you lift your hands. I know the true condition of your heart. I see what you do in the secret. I know the decisions you're making. I know what you harbor, and I know the deception. I see it, and I see through the facade. I see the real you. And listen, he says this is an abomination. So I, I just a word of encouragement. He sees the true condition of our life. He recognized the gap between what we project and who we are. And like, and Jeremiah's like, do you really think you're gonna play this game and win? And the answer is no. So hear me say this. He's saying to them, I'm gonna remove my presence if you continue this life. So, so hear this, church. Sin does not nullify the covenant relationship we have with God. Anybody thankful for that? 
but sin will remove the blessings of the covenant relationship from our life. And what is the life of the covenant relationship? What is the greatest blessing? It is the very presence of God among his people. It doesn't nullify the covenant, but it does remove the blessings of the covenant. And this is serious business. Look what he goes on to say. He's going to give us an example of what this looks like. Verse 13. He says, he wants them to go on a field trip. He says, go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first. So what he's referring to is, if you go back in time in the nation of Israel, this is before King David, before King Saul, Eli was the priest. Eli um, had good intentions, but not enough godliness to lead well. And Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle was erected. This is where the people would go and worship. God's presence dwelt in Shiloh. But because of the sin of the people, God destroyed Shiloh. God brought it to ruins. So in essence, what he's saying is, is that if you don't believe what, what I'm about to do, if you don't trust what the prophets are saying, take a little field trip to Shiloh. What you're going to find in Shiloh is the ruins of a place that, that my presence once dwelt. The blessings of covenant relationship was once experienced there, and now it's in ruins, and it's in ruins because of the rebellion of the people. And if I've done that before, I'll do it again. It's exactly what he says. Look what he says in verse... 13, and now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. You see the patience and the grace of God. When I called to you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, a reference to the temple, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave you and your fathers, as I did in Shiloh, or I did to Shiloh. He says, so when you stand in Shiloh and you see the ruins of that city, I, I want you to, this is your future if you don't repent. I will, I will burn this place to the ground. And the covenant people of God in that moment lose their distinction. What's the distinction between the people of God and the, the nations of the world? It is the presence and the power of God dwelling among them. So the covenant is not nullified, but the presence of God is no longer with them. Now, eyes right here just for a second. This is a message and a word from the prophet Jeremiah to the covenant community of faith under the old covenant. A covenant that was established by the sacrifice of bulls and goats and rams that had to be repeated. It was insufficient. And a relationship with God that could not ultimately transform their heart. So this is the consequence of those who are under the old covenant. How much more is the consequence for those of us who are under the new covenant? You see, Jeremiah 31, later on, he's going to tell them, hey, a new day's coming. A new covenant is going to be established. And this new covenant uh, that God is going to establish with humanity is not going to be ratified with the blood of bulls or goats. It is going to be ratified by the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ, the great spotless lamb who will end all sacrifices. He will carry in himself the weight of the sin of the world, making full atonement for our sin so that by, his, his, by faith in his death and resurrection, we enter into to a new relationship and the power of this new covenant is greater than the old covenant because with this new covenant comes a new heart and the spirit of God doesn't dwell in a temple, it dwells in us. You see, the old covenant, God had a temple for his people. In the new covenant, his people become the temple who are now filled with the Spirit of God, who's given a, a heart of flesh to pursue the things of God. And if this is the judgment that he would bring on those under the old covenant, you see, we have something that they did not have. We have the Spirit of God living inside of us. And we know that God loves us so much that he sent Christ. So how much more then is it a necessity for us to say in response to this relationship, we desire you more than anything else. Our posture of our life is going to be in full submission to you. Your spirit is in us and we want to be full of your spirit. We are your people who are filled with your presence to be a light to this world. How much more should we walk in submission? See, this... this 
This should level us. The apex of the covenant that we have with God is that Christ shed his blood and now the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And what defines us as a church, as a covenant community, is not our programs, and it's not our preaching, and it's not our methods, and it's not every, all the other things that we think. What makes us distinct in the world is that the presence of God is in us. And if the people of God don't have the presence of God, then we lose our distinction. And this is powerful. You say, so can I just tell you why churches die? And I'll tell you why New Beginnings was on the brink of death. Churches die because God removes his hand from them. That's why they die. God would rather have an empty church with the doors boarded up than to have people called by his name pretending to have church and his presence not be there. And there's so many churches that are content with living in a Jeremiah 7 type of lifestyle. And the power and the presence of God has departed that he has removed his hands. Churches die because God removes their hands. That's why they die. It's not because of the pastor, the programs, or they need to find new ways of reaching their community. The reason churches die is the same reason churches live. The hand of God. So if there is a church that's on fire, that's thriving, I promise you, it's not because of the pastor, and it's not because of the programs, and it's not because of their method and resources. It is because for whatever reason, by his grace, the hand of the Lord is upon that people because they're resting and pursuing him with all of their heart. And the moment they cease to do that, he will remove his hand after warning them. You say, will God really do that? We're New Covenant people. Go back and read Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The message to the seven churches, he opens it up by saying, I, Jesus, the one who walks among the seven lampstands, the seven lampstands is a metaphor for the seven churches. And what's the key? The presence of Jesus walks among them. I want you to let that sink in. How cool is it to think that we are a lampstand in the kingdom of God to fight back the darkness of this world, but what makes us special is that Jesus walks among us. And if he ever stops walking among us, we will cease to exist. And I don't know about you, I don't want to attend a church that Jesus is not attending. It's the dumbest hobby in the world to go to a church that God doesn't attend. He'll do it. What does he tell the seven churches? One in particular, he says, you you do all of these things. Your programming is awesome. Your theology is good. You teach the Bible but I'm this close from taking your lampstand away because you've stopped pursuing me with all your heart. You've left your first love, which is me. God will do that. We can't play games. We've got to be serious. So that's the context of Jeremiah 29 11. That's the context. And it can't be downplayed. See, part of their issue with, with, with Judah during this time is that the false prophets are those who had faux spirituality. They were downplaying everything, which is what's happening in our culture. It's not as bad as it is. We just need to go to a conference and get 14 ways that we can engage our community. That's the church world or the pastor's world I live in. And you go to these conferences, your church is dying and it's dead and the spiritual life is gone and they sit up in there and talk about 14 ways. Here's some strategy. You implement this and hire this kind of person and man, you'll engage your city and there's no calling to get on your face before God and just stay there until he shows up. It's just man's efforts and man's power to do something only God can do. And we downplay, and this is what the, 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 the false prophets were saying The temple of the Lord's here. The Lord's not going to do that. And then when destruction came, you know what they were saying? It's not as bad as you think. We're only going to be in Babylon for a little bit. God's not that angry. This is why verse 10 in chapter 29, Jeremiah opens up with this phrase. After 70 years, the Lord will visit you. 
Why? Because previously the false prophets are downplaying the spiritual condition of, the, of God's people by telling them it's not as bad as you think, it won't be that long, and then you get into chapter 29 and here's the instructions that God gives his people. Buy some land, build some homes, have some babies, you're gonna be here a while. It's that bad. 70 years. And then the beauty of verse 11, chapter 29. There's hope. So yes, you're in judgment, but then the glory of verse 11, but I have plans for you. I've brought you to this place, and yes, for 70 years, you're going to feel the consequence of your sin and this spiritual darkness that you've, you've come to. I've done this for a specific purpose. I have brought you here so that I can crush you, and when I crush you, you're going to turn your eyes toward me, and you're going to recognize that I've been what you needed all along, and in that posture of surrender, I'm going to take what I have crushed, and I'm going to make you new again. And church, that is the solution. That is why 20 months ago, we started getting on our face before the Lord. And that is why we must stay in that position. Our hope in a spiritually dark and depraved age of the church where sin is crept in. You see, the issue with the church in America is not the world's sin. It's the sin of the church that looks just like the world. And I'm not trying to be some mean-spirited fundamentalist preacher who's just screaming about all of our sin, but I will tell you this, we have downplayed sin so much in our church that we look no different than the world around us, and God will have no part of that. None. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is very clear. It's prayer. That's the solution. So how do I know that? Well, in verse 11... I have plans for you, declares the Lord, not, not, to, not evil, but to give you a future. Verse 12, look what he says next. Then, in this place of brokenness, you will call upon me, and you will come, and you will pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. This was the purpose of the exile. This was the point when he says, I have plans for you, declares the Lord. He said, look, I didn't bring you here by accident. Here's my plan. My plan was to bring you to a place of brokenness so that you'll turn to me and call on my name and seek my face and recognize that I am what you needed all along and you have no hope apart from me. And in that place, when you seek me, you will find me because you're seeking me with all of your heart. He is stripping away everything that they've trusted in in order to recognize that what they need to trust in is him and him alone. Isn't that isn't that?" That's the most beautiful expression of the grace of God I can imagine. The worst thing he could do was leave them where they were. The best thing he could do was take them to Babylon, wear their hindquarters out so they could recognize they gotta trust him. Did you recognize the language here? Five times in verses 12 and 13, the word me occurs. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you, and that you will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. You know why that's, that's significant? The heartbeat of prayer is not to get something from God, but to get God. That is what Wednesday nights are about. So do we ask the Lord to heal? Yes and amen. Do we ask the Lord to make provision? Yes and amen. Do we ask the Lord to intervene? We absolutely do. But we do that because we are in his presence. So we come in this place and we're seeking him. And when we seek him and we find him in that position of finding him, then as his people enjoying the presence of our creator, we can come with thanksgiving in our heart and make our petitions believing that he can do what we ask. But we're not there to get from him. We're there to get him. And that's the heartbeat of prayer. This is why Wednesday night is so critical. It is the lifeline of our church. And I'll tell you the reason, the reason at times it's discouraging is because I feel like sometimes our church is like the nation of Israel. It's like Judah in this passage, that we hear the word of the Lord, but we don't take it seriously. 
So I get this statement, man, I'm, I'm good. Man, Pastor, this is more for about you and your little season of darkness than it was really about me or, or, or my family. And here's what I would say to that. If that's true, that's more of a reason to pray. If that's true, and here's why. It's not about you and your family. It's about the covenant community of faith. So if all is good with you and your family, there should be a recognition of how broken the world is and how broken the church is and that brokenness would drive you as someone who's walking with the Lord and seeing him and hearing his voice to plead all the more. Here's how I know that. Jeremiah is the most godly man in Judah at this particular moment. And yet when you read the book of Jeremiah, no one weeps more and no one prays more than Jeremiah. No one is on their face before the Lord asking God for a miracle than Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is walking in godliness, but the reason he's in that posture broke is he realizes it's not just about me and my family. It's about the covenant community and ultimately the name of God and his mission to redeem the world. Therefore, if the people of God are in ruins, then I am in ruins regardless of where I am spiritually. And so for those who say I'm good but feel no burden, let me just encourage you with this. You're not as good as you think you are. I say that with tenderness and love. When you see clearly spiritually, you all of a sudden begin to recognize how much we need God's visitation in our nation and in our church. And here's the beauty. Ready for the beauty? This is the promise. Verse 14. When you seek me like this, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations of all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. What is he talking about? I'm going to restore you back to the blessings of the covenant where my presence will once again dwell in your midst. Anybody want that? And this is the promise. Now look, he, he says, if you seek me, then I will visit you. I will be found by you. But it requires a pursuit. It requires a, a, a life of prayer. It requires the, the, the people and the covenant community of God together seeking him with all of our heart. And we have the promise that when we do this, he'll come and visit us. This is what we need, church. And this is why the last 20 months, God has done what he's done in us as a church. And if we want to continue to see it, we have to stay in this posture the church in America, by and large, has lost its spiritual power. And I believe that the eyes of the Lord are roaming our nation. And he's looking for local congregations who would sense a yearning for his presence by his grace and who would humble themselves and begin to seek his face. I, I want God to bring revival. And he wants to use other churches. I'm great with that. As long as we get to experience it, I want to be a part of it. But listen, could it be that God wants to use New Beginnings Baptist Church to get us to that place of brokenness so that we might become a catalyst of a fresh move of the Holy Spirit that would not just transform us and our community, but it just might be that we would see a movement of God in our nation. Where we would be able to see what we read about in history where there's hundreds and thousands of salvations of people coming to faith in Christ Every great revival we've ever seen in American history and in church history was in the hills of spiritual depravity where God began to turn the hearts of his people to the Lord. And a broken culture was transformed because the church caught fire by the Holy Spirit. And I want to see that. Here's the fear. Fear is, is that we would get over what God has already done and we would settle in and we would get off of our knees and I don't want that for you I don't want that for me let me just make a confession right? so I'm not when I'm preaching hard typically I'm not preaching at you I'm preaching in front of you to me and I just have to confess two weeks ago I confessed this at prayer meeting some of you were there you heard me say it we had a little season in that night of just confession of sin, just by ourselves with the Lord, and the Lord spoke very clearly to me. And he reminded me of the story I told you about sitting right over here where the Lord said to me, 
I've left you in this season because I want you to fight for me. And I want to break your hip, spiritually speaking, because I would rather you limp with me than to run without me. And I was sitting right over here on my stool on Wednesday nights, and the Lord just simply said to me, you're losing your limp. I just confess, that scares me. Because I remember, I remember what it was like. I've seen two sides of ministry. One is without the power of the Holy Spirit, and one is with the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to go back. And it scared me. I don't want to lose my limp. Church, I don't want us to lose our limp. I want us to be humbled more and more and more because here's the great news. He's inexhaustible. So no matter what power you've seen him display, his presence, there's more of him to know. Isn't that great news? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a couple of minutes and we're just going to pray. And and one of the things that I I want us to really contemplate is one of the reasons... One of the evidences when God is moving is that people are not ashamed or afraid to be humble before the Lord. Which means maybe getting on your knees at your seat or coming to this altar or rearranging your schedule and coming to prayer meeting. And I'm challenging you to find a rhythm in your life where you can regularly, it might be every week, could be two times a month, regularly attend prayer gathering together because this is about the corporate community. But humbling ourselves on Sundays at the altar at our seats posturing ourselves in the position that we want our heart to go sometimes it takes my knees to get me physically to a place that spiritually my heart needs to follow you got to lose your pride you got to be willing to be humbled so I want to take a few moments this morning and let's just respond that way so I'm going to ask you to stand as you stand I'm going to pray over us and this altar is going to be open We're just going to spend some moments. And here's what I'm asking you to do. Ask the Lord to stir within you a passion to seek his face. If you don't know him, there are going to be decision encouragers up here. And they're available for you to be prayed for. If you want a relationship with Jesus and you don't have one, there's going to be men and women standing right here and right here that are available to talk to you about that. But those of you who know him, let's get on our face and seek him this morning. Father, I give this time to you. Move in in, in ways only you can move. We want to see you move in power, God. We want to see you move in power. We ask that you do that in Jesus' name.